0: You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, day there. It's great to be with you today. My name is Tim, and as you've heard, we're thinking about racism today, in particular through the lens of Black Lives Matter. And that's because the 25th of May, 2020, I think was a day that changed the world forever. Uh, you may not know that day, but you'll certainly know what happened on it. George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was murdered in the streets of Minneapolis by a police officer who handcuffed him, uh, knelt on his neck for nine and a half minutes until he stopped bleeding. Sorry, breathing. breathing. Uh, the whole thing was filmed by a 17-year-old, Darnella Frazier, who posted the video online which then sparked massive uh, riots and protests, not just in the US, but around the world, uh, particularly against police brutality uh, and uh, towards people of color as well. Uh, This is also the time that the hashtag Black Lives Matter gained global prominence. So uh, it's not to say that that is when the phrase was first used or that the organization was started. That happened back in 2013 in response to some of the events uh, that took uh, place in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin. But it was in the wake of George Floyd's murder that the slogan became global. Right? All of a sudden, in places outside the US, people were rallying together, protesting under the banner of Black Lives Matter. And So there were protests in Canada, the UK, France, New Zealand, Colombia, uh, even in Australia. The slogan was picked up and applied particularly to the plight of our First Nations people. Uh, In June that year, thousands of protesters marched down George Street in Sydney holding banners that said, Black Lives Matter and stop uh, black deaths in custody. Again, almost almost overnight, uh, the phrase Black Lives Matter was in the consciousness of people all over the world. Uh, Now, you might recall, that was not without its controversies. Uh, In response to the phrase, black lives matter, some people came back and said, no, surely all lives matter, surely blue lives matter, right, police lives. Uh, And yes, while that may be true, most advocates of black lives matter would say you've missed the point. Uh, And as I'll explain later, I think I agree, I do agree. Uh, But others pointed out the fact that, well, there's an organization by the same name that has some questionable agendas. And so Black Lives Matter Global, the organisation, was founded by a self-professed Marxist and on their website they at least used to say that part of their mission was, among other things, to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Now, since been updated, that line has been removed, but a number of people would say, well, yes, I agree that black lives matter, but but I don't want to use that phrase and I wouldn't march in their protest because I don't want to be seen as I don't want to support uh, something that's sort of Marxist and anti-Christian. Now, to be honest, I am sympathetic to that position, uh, though actually more recently I've sort of come to see that that's probably even that is actually just too simplistic. Uh, After all, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has well and truly outgrown the Black Lives Matter organisation and, frankly, a lot of people who support the movement have no idea about or allegiance to the goals of the organisation. At the end of the day, what most people are protesting against when they use the phrase or post the hashtag Black Lives Matter is racism Uh, and, in particular, the treatment or mistreatment of black people in custody. And at the end of the day, we have to appreciate a concern for that didn't begin uh, with the death of George Floyd or the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Even in Australia, uh, we've known for years that racism is an issue and that black people are overrepresented in our prison systems. So, for example, last year, it marked the 30 years since we had a royal commission into aboriginal deaths in custody in australia now, so again the issue of racism and particularly uh, its influence on the criminal justice system has been an issue that has been bubbling away uh, for several decades in various ways but it does seem like something's changed doesn't it in recent years doesn't it seem like you know even if we just step back from the issue of police brutality doesn't it seem like Issues of race and racism are far more sort of at the forefront of the public consciousness, uh, not just around the world, but even in Australia. And what's kind of surprising for so many is that it's come at a time where I suspect many of us thought we were making huge steps forward in this area. See, we need to acknowledge Australia has a horribly racist past, I don't know how well aware you are of what happened but to begin with the treatment of our First Nations people by the early settlers was almost unimaginable. When they not only took their land many of the early settlers believed that the aboriginal people were subhuman and so justified killing them on that basis. But it wasn't just the first settlers from 1910 to 1970 that's very recent. Our uh, children of Aboriginal and white parentage were forcibly taken away from their parents and forced to assimilate and adopt the values of what would become known as White Australia, which kind of leads on to our immigration policy. Um, Between 1901 to 1949, Australia had a number of policies that aimed to prevent people from non-European backgrounds, particularly Asian and Pacific Islanders, from entering Australia. Right? Our Our stated aim as a country was to keep Australia white. It's only in 1975, uh, with the introduction of the Race Discrimination Act, that discriminating against someone on the basis of their race became illegal in areas like employment, public services, and education. So again, Australia has a horribly racist past. I think it's worth saying, Almost nobody in their right mind would say we'd eradicated it altogether for good. Uh, We know it continues to rear its ugly head in Australia, right? So there was the Islamophobia that kind of happened after September 11. There was the Cronulla riots in 2005. There was sort of increased hostility and racism towards particularly Chinese people in the wake of COVID-19 in those early days. But for the most part, Uh, Surveys show that until recently, the majority of Australians thought that racism was on the decline. Until around the events of George Floyd. So for example, uh, the Scanlon Foundation does a survey every year in which they test people's attitudes and experiences towards a range of things to do with social cohesion. In 2021, the survey found that There was an unprecedented increase in the number of people who thought racism was a problem in Australia. So let me quote to you from the report, it says, despite no increase in reported discrimination between July 2020 and the 2021 report, 60% of people said they consider racism a fairly big problem or very big problem, up from 39% in 2020. An increase of 20 percentage points in response to a general question of this nature is almost unprecedented in the Scanlon Foundation surveys. I think that's interesting. There was no reported increase in discrimination. In other words, specific acts of racism didn't become more prevalent during that time. But as a nation, we became 20 percentage points more convinced that racism was a big deal in Australia. Why is that? Well, I want to suggest the answer is something called critical race theory. Critical race theory. Some of you will have heard that. Uh, Maybe you've encountered it through university or through books or through podcasts or through talk shows or maybe the paper. Uh, A bulk of you, I suspect, haven't. That's okay. We'll explore it today. But what I want to try and do today is to help us see that we've all been exposed to it And most of us have probably also been influenced by it to one degree or another. Now, if you say, well, how have I been exposed to it? Uh, Probably most of us had our first exposure to it really in a big way uh, through the Black Lives Matter movement and all the kind of the conversation that happened in the media around that time. um, Because really what that phrase is, Black Lives Matter, and again, this is not the case for everyone who uses it, but for many people... The the phrase Black Lives Matter is the tip of an ideological iceberg, where the iceberg is critical race theory. So I want to explore that with you today. But it, it might be that you say, Well, you know, I barely even know what Black Lives Matter is. You know, you've told me some stuff. I, you will still have been influenced to it and exposed to critical race theory because its ideas, its core tenets are just in the air that we breathe such that they are everywhere. And many of us think critical race theory thoughts without even realising it. Now, it's worth saying, I don't think that's all bad. In fact, the more I've looked into critical race theory, the more I've come to actually appreciate some of its insights. Uh, Having said that, I do also think there are some major problems with it, uh, which we need to be aware of so that we're careful not to adopt it. So with that in mind, I want to preach today's sermon in two parts. The first is to just uh, explore some of the core ideas of critical race theory and tell you why I appreciate some of it. But then the second will be to kind of re-examine a bunch of stuff and give a biblical critique of it that's what I want to do. Uh, before we jump in though, let me just kind of give a, a brief preamble on a number of things. The first is just to reiterate something I said a couple of weeks back. This is a series about ideas. It's a series about ideas. And so as I was thinking what I could speak on today, I started to realise there's probably actually, there's four different talks I could give today, at least four. Uh, the first which is right up my alley, would just a theology of race and kind of trace uh, God's heart for the nation's right as it unfolds through the Bible. I would have loved that talk. Um, Second is a a talk on the power of the gospel to transform the racist prejudices in the hearts of all of us. That would have been a good talk. Uh, Talk three would be a talk on Aboriginal reconciliation and um, corporate guilt and responsibility and how to think about that. The fourth talk is the talk I'm going to give today. Now I think all of those talks would have been important and there was a time where I thought I could do all four in one, but I realized that's just going to be a bad talk um, and too much to cover. And So I've chosen to do today's talk for two reasons. The first is that it is the talk that fits best with the series. Remember, this is a series about ideologies that are competing for your activism and your allegiance. And so by choosing this one, I'm not saying it's the most important talk or that it's more important than the other topics. They're all important. But it is the talk that fits with the series, so that's why I want to do it. Uh, The second reason I want to go after particularly this ideology, critical race theory, is that I don't think many of us, if any of us, are being tempted by the ideology of white supremacy. To begin with, I don't know what it is exactly, but I feel like, I don't know, something around, like only 50% of our church maybe is white. So I doubt many of us, if any of us, have bought into the evil and wicked worldview that white people and white culture, if there's even such a thing, is uh, superior to others. Now I do think we're all sinful, uh, and I think all of us will have racial, whatever the colour of our skin, we will have racial prejudices within our hearts that we need to repent of and seek forgiveness for. But again, I, I don't think full blown white, Asian, black, brown supremacy is an ideology that many of us are in danger of adopting anytime soon. But I am concerned that in the name of something as nice sounding as social justice, uh, some of us might be in danger of, or already have, adopted the ideology of critical race theory. And that's a problem. Because as as I said, there are some genuinely helpful insights which I'll draw your attention to today. Uh, Taken as a whole, it is a rival worldview and a false gospel. And so we need to be aware of that. Final thing to say is that uh, despite my best efforts, Today's talk will, in some ways, resemble fairly closely a talk given by a man named Andrew Hurd from a church called EV on the Central Coast. Uh, Andrew is a friend of mine. Uh, I listened to this talk that he gave uh, three or four months ago. I really appreciate it. So I've tried not to copy it, but he's clearly read all the same books that I've read. Uh, anyway, so it's all my own words, but there's definitely overlap between the ideas. So anything I've stolen, it's all good from him. All right, all that by way of introduction, let's jump in. So, core ideas of critical race theory. Now, as we jump in, worth knowing, uh, you almost never, most of you won't encounter critical race theory as a theory. Uh, You'll encounter it through its ideas, through its kind of key tenets. And so, what I want to do under this first heading is walk you through five of the core tenets of critical race theory as outlined by this book. Uh, It's critical race theory, an introduction by uh, Jean Stefanic, uh, uh, and Richard Delgado, so five. Uh, the first is that racism is not just individual, but systemic and everywhere. Racism is not just individual, but systemic and everywhere. And so Delgado, Delgado and Stefancic write this, racism is ordinary, not aberrational. It is the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. Now they're writing for a US audience there, but you get the point. Now I suspect until recently, most of us probably would have thought of racism as um, prejudiced attitudes or actions of one person or group towards another person or group based on the race of that person. And so we might have thought of kind of overt examples of racism, so things like, you know, prejudicial attitudes, or they're all lazy, or they're all violent, or uh, verbal attacks, you know, racial slurs, physical violence, beatings, murder, even sort of workplace discrimination, so, you know, overlooking someone for employment on the basis of their race, for example. Uh, All of those are what we might call individual or, at the very least, obvious, you know, overt examples of racism. Uh, and I suspect many of us would have thought that kind of stuff is on the decline, uh, not just in Australia, but also around the world. The critical race theory says in addition to that kind of overt racism, there is a far more subtle and prevalent form of racism called systemic racism. And this is the idea that racism isn't just about people being prejudiced and oppressing others. It's about an entire system of power that disadvantages and oppresses those who aren't in the dominant group. Now, uh, if you're tempted to reject the idea or sort of be resistant to it, as frankly I was once upon a time, uh, just hold the suspicion and let's just consider for a moment uh, the example of the British colonisation of Australia. When the British came to Australia, They brought with them a way of life that was radically different to the way of life of um, Indigenous Australians. For thousands of years, the Aboriginal people had lived a a nomadic hunter-gatherer life with their own dress codes, their own languages. And then along come the British with their own dress codes and their own uh, languages and a particular approach to farming and manufacturing and things like that that valued you know private property, wealth, and uh, private ownership. Now those are two radically different systems. they're two radically different societies that re- emerge as a result of that. Now, if they could exist side by side, maybe it was okay, but that's not what happens, because over time, the settlers expand their society and push out more and more uh, the first Nations people and kind of to the fringes. Until effectively, they've set up an entire system and a way of life and a culture that disadvantages anyone that really values a hunter-gatherer way of life. Now, uh, someone might come back to that and say, "Well, okay, but but that's not racism, right? You know, they didn't intentionally set up the system to disadvantage Aboriginal people; it just sort of turned out that way." The thing is, even if that's true. The fact remains that the system disadvantaged First Nations people and often continues to do so. And so you can call it systemic inequality or systemic prejudice, if that makes you feel better, but that is what critical race theorists are trying to describe when they use a term like systemic racism. And actually, I think it's a helpful insight. It opens our eyes to some of the things that are going on, so I'm thankful for it. Number two, second core idea is what's called interest convergence or uh, most white people deny and defend their own power in the system. Most white people deny and defend their own power in the system. And so Delgado and Stefancic write this. See, because racism advances the interests of both white elites materially and working class whites psychically, Large segments of society have little incentive to eradicate it. So this one builds off the first one, right? Because the system advantages white people, white people have no desire to fix it. Now, if you're a white person, just don't get too defensive straight away because we're in a church. Think about the doctrine of sin. What does it tell us about humanity? It tells us that humans are sinful to the core. And so without the transforming power of the gospel, all of us have a vested interest in looking after ourselves and holding on to any power or privilege that we may or may not experience and enjoy. And so, of course, this is going to be true. It's going to be true for white people in Western European nations. It's going to be true for the majority people in other parts of the world. That's just the way that sinful people work. When we have power, we like to hold on to it. And sometimes we deny and defend that we even have it. Now, I think it's worth noting it may not always be a willful denial of the power. Sometimes it it may just be that we're sort of a bit blind to it. And So let me illustrate that by way of my own experience. Um, Until recently, I would have strived for and actually prided myself on being are what is sometimes called blind. In other words, I saw it as a good thing that I tended not to notice the race of someone that I was speaking to, whether you know white, black, Asian, brown skinned. I thought that was a good thing, uh, and when I did notice, I tried not to. No- I tried to forget about it because I didn't want to treat people differently on the color on the basis of their skin color. Now, frankly, uh, I still think that is most of the time a good way to think, but I have actually started to see that it's not always the most loving approach. So, for example, uh, George Yancey has written a book called Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to Colorblindness and anti-racism. Now, he's writing for a US audience, um, but he makes the point that, uh, in general, conservatives and white people tend to prefer colorblindness, whereas, progressives and black people, again he's writing for the US, uh, tend to prefer anti-racism. I won't go into what anti-racism is, but he makes the point that being colorblind is usually only something that the dominant group in a culture can afford to be. And so for example, I can afford not to notice color because the color of my skin almost never disadvantages me, except of course when I go up against the sun and I get sunburned, Uh, but that's not everyone's experience. Uh, for many people of colour, not all, but some, many, overt and covert prejudice is actually a regular experience. And so for me to say, hey, let's just pretend that colour doesn't exist, hey, we're all the same, That I don't see colour, uh, that is at best uh, naive and at worst willfully turning a blind eye to their suffering. Uh, now, irrespective of whether I can actually do anything to change the system, at the very least, I can acknowledge it. I can see their pain. I can let them know that I see their pain, and so they don't have to suffer in silence. Romans 12:15 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. It may sound counterintuitive, but sometimes actually allowing ourselves to see colour is helpful Because it enables us to mourn with those who mourn. And so this is why I think saying all lives matter back in 2020 was just, you missed the point. You're insensitive. Of course all lives matter. But it was the black lives who were mourning. What they needed was people to say, I see your mourning and I stand with you in it. Three. This one's called intersectionality. It's the idea that racism is only one form of prejudice which compounds as it intersects with other minority identities. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? i give it to you again. Racism is only one form of prejudice, which compounds as it intersects with other minority identities. Now, I could quote to you from the book, but that won't make it any clearer, so I'm just going to give you a graph or a, a diagram instead. Uh, this uh, is from an essay called Describing the Emperor's New Clothes by a lady named Catherine Morgan, and it outlines each of the axes by which she thinks oppression takes place. And so the theory goes, the more features you have above that horizontal line uh, so if you're male, if you're white, you're young, you're straight, you're educated, you're attractive, you're able-bodied, etc, etc the more privileged points you enjoy, and the more likely you are to oppress others. Whereas Uh, The more features you have below the line, so you're female, you're dark-skinned, you're old, you're gay, you're illiterate, you're unattractive, you're disabled, etc., the less privilege you have and the more oppression you're likely to experience. Now, I'm going to offer a critique of that later on, uh, so we'll come back to it. But I, I do think it's a helpful observation, again, because racism is the result of sin. And sin wants to use and abuse power. And so the same sin that manifests itself in racism in one area, white over black, will also manifest itself in other areas where I may have a certain form of cultural power. And so it's helpful to just draw our attention to that. Fourth. The fourth core tenet is what's called standpoint theory. Uh, sometimes standpoint epistemology. This is the idea that white people need people of colour to explain racism to them. White people need people of colour to explain racism to them. Uh, Delgado and Stefancic put it like this, because of their different histories and experiences with oppression, black, American Indian, Asian and Latino writers and thinkers may be able to communicate to their white counterparts matters that the whites are unlikely to know. Minority status, in other words, brings with it a presumed competence to speak about race and racism. Now again, I think there's a degree of truth to that. Uh, In preparation for today's talk, I spoke with an indigenous pastor, so a man. Uh, I spoke with a black woman. I spoke with about 10 men and women of Asian descent. Uh, Those conversations probably took me about four, four and a half hours to have. Uh, And to be honest, I learned a lot from each of them. Uh, Some of them had experienced overt racism. Some of them hadn't experienced too much but with all of them I found myself learning things about race and racism that I I just hadn't really seen or thought about before. Now, to be frank, I didn't need critical race theory to tell me to have the conversations, uh, but it highlights the importance of having them and for which I'm thankful. Fifth, fifth core idea is what's sometimes called social construction. And this is the idea that race is a social construct, not a biological reality. Race is a social construct, not a biological reality. And so Delgado and Stefan Csic write, race and races are products of social thought and relations, not objective, inherent, or fixed. They correspond to no biological or genetic reality Rather, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient. Now, it's worth saying they're not denying that people have different skin colors and sometimes slightly different facial features that go along with the skin color. Uh, They're not denying that. What they're saying is that the modern concept of race has far more to do with social thought than it does biology And unfortunately, the modern theory, the modern concept of race, has often been used in the past and still today to subjugate and oppress people. So, for example, when the British first colonised Australia, the dominant understanding of race was a theory of kind of being, a theory called uh, the uh, Great Chain of Being. And so it was a way of understanding uh, kind of all of the things in the universe. And so the idea was there's God at the top, Uh, There's angels, then there's humanity, then there's animals, then there's plants, then there's sort of rocks and other inanimate objects. And within humanity, there was also a hierarchy in order, which, surprise, surprise, the Europeans were at the top of. Now, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but when the British settlers came to Australia, some saw the Indigenous Australians as the missing link between humanity and the animals. In other words, they saw them as either the lowest rung of humanity or the highest rung of the animals. Now, I hope it goes without saying that that is not only wicked and evil, it also has absolutely no justification in biology. In fact, I think this is one of the more helpful reminders of what critical race theory is teaching us. Uh, Because in his book, Bloodlines, uh, John Piper writes this, essentially all anthropologists have given up the attempt to identify races of human beings. This is very simply because the best evidence indicates that there are physically no clear boundary lines between the various communities of people around the world. Nearly all the traits that distinguish human beings from one another are found in all communities, though in varying degrees. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching, and listen to what he says. He says, From one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marks out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Don't miss the start of that. From one man. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, where you were born, or what country you hail from, we're all related to Adam. And therefore, there's not many races in the world. There's one race. It's the human race. So there you have five core tenets of critical race theory. And why I think actually there's some helpful insights that we can get out of it. Now, as I said, I will offer a critique in a moment. But one of the reasons I've gone through all the things I think are helpful from it is I want to protect you from sort of just particularly some of your more conservative people, which is, it's me, going after and attacking anyone who looks like they might have learned something from critical race theory. And so for example, uh, last year I read a book called Fault Lines by a guy named Voddy Borkham. The subtitle of the book is The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals Looming Catastrophe. It's received nearly 7,000 five-star reviews on Amazon, right? So this is a popular, a well-loved, well-circulated book, not an outlier. Now, he's a conservative Baptist pastor from the U.S., so I kind of knew what I was in for. I, I presumed he'd have a bit of a critique, but he's also black. And so I thought maybe he'll at least concede that some of the insights were helpful. But from start to finish... The entire book is one complete rejection of and rebuke for anyone who seems to have learned anything remotely helpful from critical race theory. And so throughout the the, the book, he bashes Tim Keller, he bashes Matt Chandler, he bashes the Gospel Coalition, he bashes uh, Nine Marks Ministry, so it's like Mark Dever. Now you might not know any of those people, but I think they're the good guys. I, I like those guys. And so I guess my urge, my plea to you, don't be like that. I think there is an overreaction that sometimes takes place. Yeah, there are some major problems with critical race theory, and I'll give them to you in just a moment. Uh, But not everyone who's learned from it is a cultural Marxist who's abandoned the gospel and is hell-bent on overthrowing Western civilization as we know it. So have some grace. All right. Let me offer a biblical critique. As we do so, we've looked at the five core tenets. I want to give you four problems with critical race theory and these mostly map onto the first of the four. I'm going to leave off the fifth because I think that's mostly sound but let's engage with each of the four and tell you why I think there's a problem with them. Number one, uh, critical race theory or CRT sometimes I'll say, turns race into the central feature of your identity. CRT turns race into the central feature of your identity. You know, the Bible never talks about race. You know, the Bible never talks about race, at least not in the sense that we often think about it. Uh, By which I mean, it never groups humanity into white, uh, black, brown, or Asian. it, It talks about nations, tribes, peoples, languages. Doesn't talk about race, so for example, Take a look at uh, Revelation 7, verse 9. We had this read out for us before. The Apostle John, he's getting a vision into heaven, the last days. What, What does he see? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. None of those are races, by which I mean none of them are groupings on the basis of skin color or certain facial features, They're closer to what we might call ethnicities. Uh, In fact, the Greek word for nation is ethnos, which is where we get that word from, which I think is actually kind of helpful. It's instructive. because think about it. If you want to get to know someone, focusing on their skin colour is really only going to get you so far. Maybe it helps you appreciate some of their experience of racism. But what's going to be far more helpful is having an understanding of their ethnicity. So for example, knowing that someone is a second generation Korean Australian born in Sydney is going to be far more useful than knowing they're Asian. Or knowing that someone is an Irish exchange student studying occupational therapy at Sydney University is going to be way more helpful than going, oh, they're white, they're Caucasian. Yes, race is a feature of who you are. It's definitely a feature. But race, like ethnicity, is hardly the totality of who you are. It's just one part that goes into making who you are. Here's the thing, though. Critical race theory uh, wants you to make race the central feature. It wants you to say before you're a man, before you're a woman, before you're tall, before you're short, before you're a Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, you're black, you're white, you're Asian. Now, you might say, is that all that much of a problem? Well, to begin with, I don't think it's working, but the goal is to eradicate racism. I don't think that's what's happening. Um, For example, listen to what Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay say in their book, Cynical Theories. They write, by focusing so intently on race and by objecting to colour blindness, the refusal to attach social significance to race, critical race theory threatens to undo the social taboo against evaluating people by their race. Such an obsessive focus on race is not likely to end well, neither for minority groups or social cohesion more broadly. Such attitudes tear at the fabric that holds contemporary societies together. Now again, I do think there is some value in noticing colour. But by obsessing over race, Critical race theory has fragmented society into smaller and smaller and smaller groups and effectively made us all racist. So what's the alternative? Well, from a biblical perspective, the central feature of who you are is not the colour of your skin, but the fact that you are a creature made in the image and likeness of God. Now, just think about how that transforms the way you think about yourself and your relationships with others. Because if you are a creature made in the image and likeness of God, it means your first duty is not to the people with the same skin color as you, but to the God who made you to worship and obey him. What's more, it means that you're obligated to treat others as equal, irrespective of their skin color, because you, they, like you, are created in God's image and descended from Adam. Right? I think that is a far more healthy way to center your identity. Created in the image of li- and likeness of God like everyone else. Two, second problem. Uh, critical race theory pits races against each other and makes reconciliation more difficult. The critical race theory pits races against each other and makes reconciliation more difficult. See, critical race theory is an offshoot from something called critical theory, which views everything through the lens of oppression. So it puts sunglasses on and the lens of those sunglasses are oppression and so everything it sees is in a relationship of oppressor or oppressed. And so if you're white, you're an oppressor. If you're black, if you're a minority, you're oppressed. The problem with this view is that it leads to constant suspicion and a growing hostility between people of different colour. And so, for example... Uh, at a conference in Puget Sound in 2015, a number of scholar activists, including a lady named Robin D'Angelo, who's the author of White Fragility, if you've heard of that book, uh, they came together to talk about race. And one of the things that was said at the conference is that the question is not, did racism take place, but rather, how did racism manifest itself in that situation? Again, the question is not, did racism take place? That's, it obviously took place, it's always happening, it's everywhere. The question is, how did it take place? And so your responsibility as an ally, as an activist, becomes to expose it, to see it, to point it out when it's happening. You you become obsessed with finding fault in every single interaction. Now, again, racism exists. But is that really the most helpful way to view the world? Uh, In their book, Coddling the American Mind, Greg Lucianoff and Jonathan Haidt describe this process as a kind of reverse cognitive behavioural therapy. And so they point out the main purpose of CBT is to train people not to catastrophize and interpret every situation in the most negative light, but actually to sort of develop a more positive and resilient attitude. But critical race theory trains people to read insult, hostility and prejudice into every interaction, with the result that they end up seeing the world as increasingly hostile and against them. So again, yes, racism exists, but constantly seeing it everywhere, I just don't think it helps anyone. So what's the alternative? Is there an alternative? Well, again, remember, it's a set of glasses. How do you view the world? One way of viewing the world is through the lens of oppression. But there is another way. Well, there's a few. What if you viewed it through the world through the lens of love? What about grace? What about forgiveness? What about a generosity of spirits? That's certainly how the Bible would have us view and relate to one another. Now, now I'm not saying you ignore oppression or injustice. Or, you know, if things have happened in the past, we just sweep it under the rug. I'm not saying that. But it is to suggest that if our world is going to get past this gridlock, we need to stop playing the victim and demonizing the other all the time. And that actually goes for both Majorities and minorities. See, the truth is, whether you're white or not, the majority, I'm not suggesting necessarily all, but the majority of us in this room today have benefited from what the British did to the First Nations people. Now, you didn't do it. It's entirely possible that your ancestors didn't do it. Maybe you sort of just came here in the last couple of years. But you benefit from it. At the very least, and I think this is the very least, we need to acknowledge that and show a bit of compassion for the plight of Indigenous Australians, our First Nations people. On the other hand, if you're a minority, whether that's First Nations or another group, permanently blaming white people and playing the victim card isn't going to help you much either. Now, of course... Your circumstances will shape you, but they don't need to define you. But part of the glory of being a human being is that you are a responsible human agent. And so let me encourage you, take responsibility for your actions and seek to move forward in a spirit of grace and truth. Number three. Critical race theory sees all societal norms as inherently oppressive. Critical race theory sees all societal norms as inherently oppressive. Remember this diagram? All right, so this is intersectionality. It outlines each of the axes by which oppression may take place. Uh, now, as we've already said, there is value in recognising the way that sinful humans can abuse their power wherever that power is found. That's what, humans, that's what sinful people do. But the danger of intersectionality is that it it views the danger of that way of viewing the world is that it locates the problem not in sinful humanity, but in the presence of societal norms themselves. So have you heard of the word heteronormativity? Heteronormativity. Break it up, what does it mean? It's a way of describing the belief that heterosexuality is the normal mode of sexual orientation and that any form of sexuality that deviates from that is a deviation from what is normal. Now, According to intersectionality, that's oppressive. It doesn't matter that something like 95% of the world's population are heterosexual, now, if you ask the gay lobby, it's probably closer to 90%. If you ask super conservative people, it's closer to 98%. But whatever, that's not the point. Some major percentage of the world is heterosexual. But the belief that that is normal is prejudiced towards anyone who's not like that, and so we have to get rid of it. Now, of course, oppression is bad. We should be against oppression. Oppression. But it's not the case that all societal norms are inherently oppressive. Some are, but not all of them. And so, for example, the Bible says that a belief in and the presence of heteronormativity is a gift from God and the foundation of a stable society. Why? Because that's what inclines men and women to come together to, have, to get married, to have children, to raise and nurture those children in a loving and faithful environment. In other words, grace, uh, heteronormativity, leads to human flourishing, not oppression. Now, it can be used to oppress, but it's not inherently oppressive, and we need to appreciate that. Now, if you're wondering, how do we get onto that from race? Well, it's because intersectionality forces you to see oppression in every area of life. Remember the glasses. You see it everywhere. So it's not just about racism, it's not just about white over black. It's also about men over women, straight over gay, able-bodied over disabled. And so the logic goes, if you care about racism, you have to also care about sexism and uh, homophobia and ableism, all of which sounds right, doesn't it? Because we're against oppression. But again, what do you mean by sexism and homophobia? Because, again, any form of prejudice is bad, but not all forms of authority and norms are inherently evil. Remember what we looked at with Smash the Patriarchy a few weeks back? The Bible doesn't get rid of authority and power. It transforms the way that we use power. Power exists to serve others and lift them up. And So, Grace City, if you happen to find yourself with power... Uh, through the intersection of any number of cultural norms, you don't need to repent and permanently feel guilty for it. But you do need to use it to serve others. Even maybe it to yourself. Now you might say, well, what do you mean cost? My, I, it's not my fault that I've got this. Okay, sure, whatever. But that's how Jesus' followers use power. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He had all the power in the world. And how did he use it? He used it to serve others and lift them up. Whatever power you have, through whatever intersection of cultural norms or whatever it is, use it to serve, because that's how Jesus used his. Fourth and finally, uh, critical race theory says you can only access truth through lived experience. You can only access truth through lived experience. Now, as I've already said, it is important to listen to the stories and experiences of others, but I think there are two major problems with standpoint theory, which is what this is effectively called. Now, the first problem is that it always prioritises the voice of the marginalised. So, for example, when it comes to racism, people of colour are believed to have a unique voice and a counter narrative that is necessarily true because it's their lived experience. The thing is, what that means is that there's never any way to question it or uh, to counter it or to falsify it or, or at least just to consider an alternative explanation. Like maybe there was a misunderstanding. Now don't mishear me. I'm not. We must and should always. Uh, treat any form of accusation of racism or prejudice seriously, particularly when it comes from the marginalised, because they don't often get a voice. So we need to get, but listening to it and suggesting that it's necessarily true are two slightly different things. But CRT won't allow for that. If the marginalised person thinks it was racism, it must have been racism so we just end up in crazy situations where there's mob outrage and public shaming all because of how things were interpreted. The second problem, and I think this is the greater problem, is that it leads us to believe that only oppressed people can talk about oppression. So for example, I'm not qualified to talk about racism because I'm white and I haven't experienced it. Now again, th- there's a difference between saying Tim's a white guy, so he's probably gonna have some blind spots on this topic. And Tim's white, and so he doesn't have access to the truth about racism. Right, the first one is obvious, and it's why I spoke to a bunch of non-white people before I got up today. The second one, well, it's not only false, it's also racist. Grace City, truth is not a private matter, only experienced through personal experiences. It's an objective reality that each of us can come to grasp to varying degrees. And what's more, the most certain word of truth you need to hear on life and death, on men and women, on black, white, Asian, brown, is found right here in the Bible. And so again, my job as your pastor is not to tell you about my personal experiences or to only preach on things that touch my personal experience. If that was my job, I could barely talk about most things. My job is to study God's word, which touches on every single aspect of life and help us together to figure out what does God's word say about this particular area. Now, yeah, it may be in the future, and it certainly has been in the past, that we bring in someone else to speak on different issues. And when we do, it might be because they have experiences that enrich their understanding but Grace City, please don't buy into standpoint theory. You don't need a woman to tell you how to think about womanhood. You don't need to, a gay person to tell you how to think about homosexuality. You don't need a person of colour to tell you how to think about racism. You need God to tell you how to think about all of those things, and he speaks to us through the scriptures. So open up your Bible and say, God, what do you have to say about this issue? And when you listen to a preacher, make sure that that preacher is helping you understand God and his world in light of God's word. That's what a preacher's job is to do. And if they don't do it, stop listening to them. Rant over. Grace City. Uh, let me close. Racism is horrible. It is wicked. It's tragic. It's evil. And it's far more prevalent than any of us would dare to imagine. But the solution to racism and reconciliation isn't critical race theory. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, only in the gospel do I see that what unites me to other people is not the color of my skin, but the fact that I have been created in the image and likeness of God and I have a common need of a savior. Because you, like I, am sinful. Only in the gospel do I actually have the confidence to confess the racial prejudices of my own heart without fear of rejection from God or cancellation from others. And only in the gospel do I actually have the strength to forgive and be reconciled to another, even a racist, because only the gospel tells me that God in Christ has already forgiven and reconciled me to himself. Grace, it could be that in the end of today, Uh, what you realize is that you do need to repent. Uh, Maybe you need to forgive. Uh, If that is the case, I want to encourage you to do it. But what our world needs is the gospel, not critical race theory. And so let us go armed with the gospel and preach about that as agents of reconciliation and then model it to one another in, in our community. Model it to the world through our communal life together. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God and Heavenly Father, uh, we confess today that as sinful human beings, there will still be uh, traces of racial prejudice within our heart. And we repent of this and we ask you to remove it and forgive us for it. It would help us to be a church that models what it is to be agents of reconciliation are both confessing our own sin, being reconciled to those who have sinned against, and moving forward as a community of love and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.